CIA spies inside China on the chopping block. Deepening its anti-espionage campaign, Beijing pointing the finger at the agency again over alleged spy recruitment. Investors' hopes dashed. China's underwhelming interest rate cut struggles to reignite subdued economic sentiment. Chinese leader Xi ventures out of China for just the second time this year. He's headed for a summit in South Africa and is expected to top the in-person VIP list, with Russian counterpart Putin sitting this one out. And Taiwanese vice president walking a diplomatic tightrope. Did his tension-filled U.S. trip pay off? Experts argue China's responding military drills brought more thunder than rain. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Another growing flashpoint in U.S.-China ties, espionage. As U.S. officials ramp up efforts to counter Chinese surveillance, Beijing is boosting its own measures, targeting so-called spies for the U.S. China's top anti-espionage agency announced an arrest Monday, apprehending an official it says is an American spy. The agency claims a 39-year-old Chinese national surnamed Hao was recruited by the CIA while studying in Japan. Neither Hao's sex nor the ministry he's said to work for were identified. According to the statement, Hao had become acquainted with a U.S. embassy official known as Ted while applying for a visa. Ted invited Hao for dinners, presented gifts, and introduced Hao to a colleague named Li Jun. Before Hao completed studying in Japan, Li revealed they were Tokyo-based CIA personnel and, quote, instigated Hao into rebelling, telling Hao to return to China to work for a core and critical unit. It's rare for China to publicly name other organizations or nations. But this is Beijing's second high-profile espionage claim this month, directly pointing to the CIA. Just 10 days ago, Beijing said it had arrested a national who had began working for the CIA while studying in Italy. Both cases were published on the ministry's new WeChat account, China's equivalent to Twitter. Earlier this month, Beijing called on all members of society to join counter-espionage work and offered rewards and protection for those who provide information. The move comes after Beijing expanded the scope of its anti-spying law in July. The U.S. Embassy in Beijing did not immediately respond to a request for comment. China's economic decisions once again surprising investors, this time by not cutting an important interest rate. This comes on top of a floundering real estate sector and record high youth unemployment. China has cut its one-year benchmark lending rate Monday, as expected, but surprised markets by keeping the five-year rate unchanged. The five-year rate ties into mortgages, something that surprised investors given the current housing sector troubles. The idea being a lower rate would increase spending, stimulating the economy. That's on top of China's economy facing wider concerns over a rapidly weakening currency as the yuan lost nearly 6% against the dollar this year, triggering concerns of capital flight. More Chinese military drills encircled Taiwan over the weekend. The patrols come a week after Beijing condemned Taiwan's vice president and presidential candidate William Lai, calling him a troublemaker for passing through the U.S. en route to Paraguay. The drills also come as President Biden hosts South Korean and Japanese leaders for a historic summit focused on concerns about China. Here's more. 
Beijing's ships and jets were deployed around Taiwan on Saturday in drills seen as a response to Taiwan Vice President William Lai's visit to the United States. The People's Liberation Army said, in text accompanying clips it shared, the drills were to test combat capabilities of joint operations forces. Taiwan's defense ministry said on Saturday it detected 42 Chinese aircraft and eight ships involved in drills around the island, while 26 Chinese jets crossed the median line of the Taiwan Strait, or just about 25 miles from Taiwan's waters. Taiwan's military on Saturday released a video of undated clips showing its troops maneuvering at sea on city streets, saying China's drills were a threat to regional peace and liberal democratic values. China's exercises are seen as a response to Taiwan Vice President William Lai transiting in the U.S. while visiting Paraguay the past week. Lai has since returned to Taiwan. China, which claims the self-ruled island as its territory, views Lai as a separatist and a troublemaker. Lai became vice president in 2020, standing as Tsai Ing-wen's running mate. He's the leading candidate in Taiwan's presidential elections next year. Beijing has repeatedly called on Washington not to engage with Taiwanese leaders, as they view it as support for Taiwan's desire to be viewed as separate from China. But most Taiwanese appeared unbothered by Saturday's drills. Many have grown accustomed to China's threats. This man in Taipei tells Reuters he thinks China's drills are more of a show, and it should be quite difficult for China to launch a real attack. While this woman says she doesn't think a war will happen, and she's unafraid. Besides, if a war does break out, she thinks the U.S. will come to Taiwan's aid. Taiwan's Navy and Defense Ministry released footage on Sunday highlighting the island's response to China's drills. In this video, Taiwanese fighter jets took off for combat air patrol from bases along Taiwan's east and west coasts. One day after Beijing carried out military drills near the island. Another video shows Taiwanese sailors surveying a Chinese warship while aboard their guided missile frigate stationed in waters to the island's south. Likewise, Beijing held its own sea-based exercises around the island a day earlier. Has Taiwan's vice president managed to walk a fine line between Beijing and Washington? William Lai returned to the island Friday from a sensitive visit to the U.S. China held exercises around Taiwan over the weekend, but on a far smaller scale than previous war games, often held in protest toward U.S.-Taiwan engagement. Ma Qingkun, a Chinese military expert at Taiwan's National Defense University, described the drills as, quote, a lot of thunder, but less rain, adding that Beijing could not find an excuse to make a big fuss. The drill lasted only one day. There was no live fire component, unlike past exercises. Both Taipei and Washington had sought to keep Lai's U.S. visit low-key, officially describing it as a routine stopover on his way to and from Paraguay. They also urged China not to use the visit as a pretext for military drills. Chinese state media responded to the trip on Saturday, calling Lai a liar. Lo Qingchen, a senior lawmaker for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, says Lai's trip was also about the broader process of introducing him to the U.S. as a steady and trustworthy leader. Also a presidential frontrunner, Lai has widened his lead to become Taiwan's next president. That's based on a Monday poll. Beyond the military drills around Taiwan, Beijing seems to be switching gears and embracing a sweeter strategy, the so-called fruit diplomacy. 
On Monday, China banned imports of one of Taiwan's prized crops, mango. Saying fruit from the island, which is enjoyed by many Chinese consumers, was discovered to carry a species of mealy bug insects. Taiwanese officials confirmed news of the ban, calling it one-sided, but they added that the halt is having limited impacts, thanks to Taiwan's trade with the overseas markets. The island has worked to bolster those relations as part of reducing its reliance on mainland China. Japan, Korea and Singapore take in much of those exports, among other Pacific countries. This year, revenue from Taiwanese mango exports to Japan topped the ranking list, with South Korea falling behind. China's ban is not an isolated case. Beijing has been using similar sanctions on the island for years, targeting the agriculture sector for certain fruits and even seafood. After China announced a ban on Taiwanese pineapples last year, the West stepped in to help. Former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo posted a photo on social media showing him eating dried Taiwanese pineapple. He added in the caption as a proponent of freedom, enjoying some Taiwanese dried pineapple. Taiwan's president is pledging to improve defenses even more amid a growing China threat. The island's planned military spending for next year hit a fresh record high, reaching 2.5 percent of the island's GDP. Here's what President Tsai Ing-wen said on Monday. Taiwan must continue to strengthen its self-defense capabilities, demonstrate its determination for self-defense, ensure its national security and interests, and seek more international support. Taiwan's 2024 military spending will increase 3.5 percent year-on-year, a record high. The overall defense budget proposed by President Tsai Ing-wen, which will need parliamentary approval, is $19 billion amounting to 2.5 percent of the island's GDP. That would be the island's seventh consecutive year of growth in military spending since 2017. China views democratically governed Taiwan as its own territory. It has ramped up military and political pressure over the past years to assert those claims, which Taipei strongly rejects. The Chinese Communist Party has never ruled Taiwan. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is taking a trip outside China's borders for just the second time this year. He's en route to South Africa as of Monday for a three-day state visit. There, he's said to attend a summit with leaders of the BRICS emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. It's the organization's first in-person meeting post-pandemic. And together, its members make up more than 40 percent of the global population. Xi's trip largely aims to improve Chinese ties with those nations. The group is being seen as a counter to Western policies and influence. That says Beijing's relations with Washington continue down a tailspin. Xi is expected to be in the center of the event, since his Russian counterpart Putin will not attend in person. In an escalating geopolitical twist, Beijing is firing back at President Joe Biden over his trilateral summit with South Korea and Japan. And welcome to Camp David. On Monday, China's foreign ministry called a meeting a deliberate attempt to sow discord between China and its Asian neighbors. During the summit last week, Biden discussed with South Korea and Japan's leaders on safeguarding global supply chains. They also reaffirmed the importance of stability in the Taiwan Strait and raised concerns about what they called China's dangerous and aggressive behavior in the South China Sea. Beijing says the summit smeared and attacked China, 
adding it considers Taiwan a domestic issue, not a global issue. It also claims a missile agreement would only increase the risk of confrontation. That's after the U.S., South Korea and Japan pledged to share real-time data on North Korea's missile launches, including a new hotline to communicate intelligence and launch military exercises. By contrast, Beijing has currently frozen in-person military dialogue with Washington. Two brothers discover traditional Chinese culture through dance. They grew up in the West, but have a profound understanding of this ancient art form. They're both professional dancers participating in NTD's 10th International Classical Chinese Dance Competition this September. Let's hear how they grasp the essence of traditional Chinese culture. At just 18 years old, Lucas Browdy earned the gold medal at the NTD International Classical Chinese Dance Competition two years ago. I feel like with classical Chinese dance is a bit different because behind it there's so much, that was 5,000 years of culture, right? And then hidden in between the dance there's like all these virtues, all these concepts, all, these, all this morality is actually being displayed through dancing. Lucas Browdy and his brother Jesse Browdy were drawn to classical Chinese dance and joined Shenyun Performing Arts, a leader in this ancient art form. I've been watching Shenyun since I was a kid, right? But this was the first time that I kind of actually understood the dances, especially the story ones. I almost cried a couple times that night. And uh, I remember going home that night and I, I wanted to be a Shenyun dancer. <laughs> While other kids were enjoying their youth, these two brothers were dedicated to honing their dance skills. They faced their own distinct challenges along the way. Naturally, my limbs are a bit longer and I'm a bit weaker than everyone else. And also, maybe I'm a bit tighter in places that you're supposed to be relaxed. And so it's harder for me to, to do, perform the jumping techniques and like flipping and stuff. So for me, my big problem would be I have to put in the extra 200% to, to build my strength in order to be able to achieve these uh, tentacle like jumps and flips. Although the path of dance isn't very easy, but I think going through it will make you a much stronger person in the heart. There's so many principles of ancient Chinese culture that go into the dance. And so um, at first I did struggle with this growing up in the West, but I've, I guess it's a matter of how well you grasp the culture, how, how well you how much you want to grasp the culture, in a way. Sometimes you feel like you go through like long periods of time without getting making much progress. You don't see any hope, I guess, to put it in an extreme way. I guess a lot of a lot of the times, it kind of just I kind of just have to sit myself down or sit myself down with like a friend or my brother or something like that, and then we just kind of talk about why we're here, what we're doing this for. Like we're not just here to dance. We're not just here to you know practice this art form, but we're also trying to. We have a greater purpose. We're trying to spread this culture to uh, the people of the world and tell the truth of what's happening in China, the persecution and stuff like that. Through the day-to-day -day grind of training, the two brothers overcame their inner anxieties and pushed beyond their physical limits. In turn, they live full, rewarding lives. First, through the dance training, I think it taught me diligence, perseverance, and to be positive. Those few lessons, I definitely, it built into me pretty strongly, and I'm pretty grateful for that. Ancient Chinese culture is definitely and divinely inspired culture, right? And then when you believe that 
there's this sort of higher being that's bestowing these gifts upon you, sort of. It kind of humbles you in a way. That it humbles you a lot, actually, because you know that nothing, that everything that I have, everything that I'm, everything that I basically stand for is 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 given to me almost. Um, sort of like in the Renaissance, like all like all of the uh, paintings and sculptures, they're all glorifying the divine. The two brothers won gold and silver in the 2021 NTD International Classical Chinese Dance Competition. This year, the competition will take place in early September at Purchase College in New York State. Lucas and Jesse encourage dancers from around the world to participate. Through the competition, you improve a lot because you're practicing techniques, you're practicing movements, and then you're stringing them together in like a, a two-minute technique piece and you're doing it over and over and over again. And so your strength, your, your dancing, your stamina will all improve greatly. And then through the story dance, your acting, your uh, I guess, will improve a lot. We have, we portray these really amazing stories filled, jam-packed with lessons and morals. By joining this competition, I feel like you improve a lot as a person. I'm very honored to be able to compete with all these people, these great people. We'll improve together, go through much together, and we'll go through strong, so. Coming up, Africa and Beijing's hunt for agricultural land. The continent is known as a pivot point in the U.S.-China rivalry. But now there's a new focus for Beijing in that contest, food. Since this year, China is importing more food products from Africa and upping investment in African farms. Why is food the new focus? And how should Washington present a better vision for Africa's future? We sat down with Kip Tom, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. agencies for food and agriculture, for details. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China is facing a major challenge, limited farmland and a massive population. Those two factors making it hard to keep mouths fed. In its search for solutions, Beijing is honing in on Africa's agricultural potential. But its presence in the continent is raising another question. Would both China and Africa benefit, or is it a one-way street? We speak to Kip Tom, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. agencies for food and agriculture, for more. Kip Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Great to be with you today. And Kip, right now, Xi Jinping, Chinese leader Xi Jinping, is in South Africa. It's there to try and boost China's influence over the whole continent. And one area that might not get as much coverage is China's influence over the continent's agricultural sector. What is China trying to get here, and how does it impact us? Well, we know China's population is at uh, about 1.4 billion people. They lack uh, the water. They lack the irritable soils. They know that their population, because of the economic consequences or economic growth over the past 20 years, that uh, people uh, are demanding a better diet. So they've had to reach beyond their shores, their borders, to get the protein uh, that their people are demanding now. So they can't produce it internally. So they're looking at places like Africa because they'd like to replace the United States and uh, other suppliers in the West uh, with their own, their own sources. 
And in terms of the geopolitics here with U.S. and Beijing both vying for influence over Africa, how does that impact us here at home? Well, you know, t today, if we look at it, a lot of trade has moved uh, away from the United States in the last six months. Uh, some of it's due to the U.S. dollar's value compared to uh, the Brazilian real. And we've seen some movement into Brazil, a lot of trading with Brazil to China. And actually, they're trading in Chinese yuans. But uh, uh, the reality is it's going to affect the United States longer term. Uh, that's why I believe we, the United States, uh, I think we got about $150 billion trade deficit with China. We need to do everything we can to do more value-added production in the United States to capture more of the world market. But ultimately, we need to go into Africa and work with them in improving their agricultural productivity as well. I think it would benefit the whole world, not just China, especially if we're doing it. And when it comes to that, most African nations are part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which actually you note in one of your pieces recently. So when it comes to that kind of influence, what should the U.S. be doing in Africa? Well, I believe, you know, we, we are probably the largest contributor of humanitarian aid and development aid on the continent of Africa. But typically, I know during my service as an ambassador that uh, we ask nothing when we give aid, as we shouldn't be. But the reality is when you get into the development side, we need to make sure that we're getting something in return. Either move the, the different countries we're working with towards a democracy and a free enterprise system. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened. And Beijing goes in and they strong arm the people, the different uh, countries across the continent of Africa, and they demand that they'll do it their way. They slowly bring this on, but uh, there's been death spirals created. And in terms of food security being national security, hitting a bit closer to home, it seems China's been buying up a lot of U.S. farmland, and part of that's close to sensitive military sites. In terms of the U.S., what should we be doing here? I think our states need to get engaged and make sure that uh, any maligned actors around the world, whether it's Russia, China, North Korea, any nation that may not be aligned with the best principles of the world or lined up with the United States as an ally, uh, we shouldn't be allowing them to buy our U.S. farmland. But probably more importantly, we need to be very conscious of the trade secrets and the different value-add propositions they got involved with. I mean, they bought uh, companies like Syngenta, uh, Smithfield Foods. There's a long list of companies that they bought in the United States. And it wasn't to buy the capacity so much, but it was to buy the intellectual property, understand how we did it here so they could do it also in China. And in our own particular area, I can share this story with you because it happened here. We had Chinese that were caught, prosecuted. They're now in prison, but they were stealing the seed genetics that we plant, the different male and female parents that we crossbreed to produce for other farmers around the world. They were stealing those baseline genetics that were proprietary materials and taking them back to China. So they'll do anything they can to get up to speed to where the United States is at in terms of agriculture productivity because they don't want to work with us. They would rather take this and produce it in China or wherever they may find uh, the irritable soils and water around the world. Kip, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate the time today. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.